In Defense of Women by H. L. Mencken, Section 7, Woman Suffrage, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Woman Suffrage, 31. The Crowning Victory. It is my sincere hope that nothing I have here exhibited will be mistaken by the nobility and gentry for moral indignation. No such feeling in truth is in my heart. Moral judgments, as old Friedrich used to say, are foreign to my nature. Setting aside the vast herd which shows no definite character at all, it seems to me that the minority, distinguished by what is commonly regarded as an excess of sin, is very much more admirable than the minority, distinguished by an excess of virtue. My experience of the world has taught me that the average wine-biber is far better fellow than the average prohibitionist, and that the average rogue is better company than the average poor drudge, and that the worst white slave-trader of my acquaintance is a decenter man than the best vice-crusader. In the same way I am convinced that the average woman, whatever her deficiencies, is greatly superior to the average man. The very ease with which she defies and swindles him in several capital situations of life is the clearest of proofs of her general superiority. She did not obtain her present high immunities as a gift from the gods, but only after a long and often bitter fight, and in that fight she exhibited forensic and tactical talents of a truly admirable order. There was no weakness of man that she did not penetrate and take advantage of. There was no trick that she did not put to effective use. There was no device so bold and inordinate that it daunted her. The latest and greatest fruit of this feminine talent for combat is the extensions of the suffrage, now universal in the Protestant countries, and even advancing in those of the Greek and Latin rites. This fruit was garnered not by an attack on Moss, but by a mere foray. I believe that the majority of women, for reasons that I presently expose, were not eager for the extension, and regard it as of small value today. They know that they can get what they want without going to the actual polls for it. Moreover, they are out of sympathy with the most Brummagen reforms advocated by the professional suffragists, male and female. The mere statement of the current suffragist platform, with its long list of quack-sure cures for all the sorrows of the world, is enough to make them smile sadly. In particular, they are skeptical of all reforms that depend upon the mass action of immense numbers of voters, large sections of whom are wholly devoid of sense. A normal woman, indeed, no more believes in democracy in the nation than she believes in democracy at her own fireside. She knows that there must be a class to order and a class to obey, and that the two can never coalesce. Nor is she susceptible to the stock sentimentalities upon which the whole democratic process is based. This was shown very dramatically in the United States at the national election of 1920, in which the late Woodrow Wilson was brought down to colossal and ignominious defeat, the first general election in which all American women could vote. All the sentimentality of the situation was on the side of Wilson, and yet fully three-fourths of the newly enfranchised women voters voted against him. He is, despite his talents for deception, a poor popular psychologist, and so he made an inept effort to fetch the girls by tear-squeezing. Every connoisseur will remember his bathos about breaking the heart of the world. Well, very few women believe in broken hearts, 
and the cause is not far to seek. Practically every woman above the age of twenty-five has a broken heart. That is to say, she has been vastly disappointed, either by falling to nab some pretty fellow that her heart was set on, or worse, by actually nabbing him, and then discovering him to be a bound or an imbecile, or both. Thus walking the world with broken hearts, women know that the injury is not serious. When he pulled out the vax angelica stop, and began sobbing and snuffling and blowing his nose tragically, the learned doctor simply drove all the women voters into the arms of the Honorable Warren Gamaliel Harding, who was too stupid to invent any issues at all, but simply took negative advantage of the distrust aroused by his opponent. Once the women of Christendom become at ease the use of the ballot, and get rid of the preposterous harridans who got it for them and who now seek to tell them what to do with it, they will proceed to a scotching of many of the sentimentalities which currently corrupt politics. For one thing, I believe that they will initiate measures against democracy, the worst evil of the present-day world. When they come to the matter, they will certainly not ordain the extension of the suffrage to children, criminals, and the insane, in brief to those even more inflammable and novish than the male hinds who have enjoyed it for so long. They will try to bring about its restriction, bit by bit, to the small minority that is intelligent, agnostic, and self-possessed, say six women to one man. Thus, out of their greater instinct for reality, they will make democracy safe for democracy. The curse of man, and the cause of nearly all his woes, is his stupendous capacity for believing the incredible. He is forever embracing delusions, and each new one is worse than all that have gone before. But where is the delusion that women cherish? I mean habitually, firmly, passionately. Who will draw up a list of propositions held and maintained by them in sober earnest that are obviously not true? I allude here, of course, to genuine women, not to suffragists and other such pseudo-males. As for me, I should not like to undertake such a list. I know of nothing, in fact, that properly belongs to it. Women as a class believe in none of the ludicrous rights, duties, and pious obligations that men are forever gabbing about. Their superior intelligence is in no way more eloquently demonstrated than by their ironical view of all such phantasmagoria. Their habitual attitude towards men is one of aloof disdain, and their habitual attitude towards what men believe in, and get into sweats about, and bellow for, is substantially the same. It takes twice as long to convert a body of women to some new fallacy as it takes to convert a body of men, and even then they halt, hesitate, and are full of mordant criticisms. The women of Colorado had been voting for 21 years before they succumbed to prohibition sufficiently to allow the man-voters of the state to adopt it. Their own majority voice was against it to the end. During the interval, the men-voters of a dozen non-suffrage American states had gone shrieking to the mourner's bench. In California, enfranchised in 1911, the women rejected the dry revelation in 1914. National prohibition was adopted during the war without their votes. They did not get the franchise throughout the country until it was in the Constitution, and it is without their support today. The American man, despite his reputation for lawlessness, is actually very much afraid of the police, and in all the regions where prohibition now actually is enforced, he makes excuses for his poltroonist acceptance of it by arguing that it will do him good in the long run, or that he ought to sacrifice his private desires to the common weal. But it is almost impossible to find an American woman of any culture who is in favor of it. 
One and all, they are opposed to the turmoil and corruption that it involves, and resentful of the invasion of liberty underlying it. Being realists, they have no belief in any program which proposes to cure the national swinishness of men by legislation. Every normal woman believes, and quite accurately, that the average man is very much like her husband, John, and she knows very well that John is a weak, silly, and knavish fellow, and that any effort to convert him into an archangel overnight is bound to come to grief. As for her view of the average creature of her own sex, it is marked by a cynicism so penetrating and so destructive that a clear statement of it would shock beyond endurance. 32. The Woman Voter Thus, there is not the slightest chance that the enfranchised woman of Protestantdom, once they become at ease in the use of the ballot, will give any heed to the ex-suffragists who now presume to lead and instruct them in politics. Years ago, I predicted that these suffragists, tried out by victory, would turn out to be idiots. They are now hard at work proving it. Half of them devote themselves to advocating reforms, chiefly of a sexual character, so utterly preposterous that even male politicians and newspaper editors laugh at them. The other half succumb absurdly to the blandishments of the old-time male politicians, and so enroll themselves in the great political parties. A woman who joins one of these parties simply becomes an imitation man, which is to say, a donkey. Thereafter she is nothing but an obscure cog in an ancient and creaking machine, the sole intelligible purpose of which is to maintain a horde of scoundrels in public office. Her vote is instantly set off by the vote of some sister who joins the other Camorra. Parenthetically, I may add that all the ladies to take this political immolation seem to me to be frightfully plain. I know those of England, Germany, and Scandinavia only by their portraits in the illustrated papers, but those of the United States I have studied at close range at various large political gatherings, including two national conventions first following the extension of the suffrage. I am surely no fastidious fellow. In fact, I prefer a certain melancholy decay in women to the loud circus-wagon brilliance of youth. But I give you my word that there were not five women at either national convention who could have embraced me in camera without first giving me chloral. Some of the chief stateswomen on show, in fact, were so downright hideous that I felt faint every time I had to look at them. The reform-mongering suffragists seemed to be equally devoid of the more caressing gifts. They may be filled with altruistic passion, but they certainly have bad complexions, and not many of them know how to dress their hair. Nine-tenths of them advocate reforms aimed at the alleged lubricity of the male, the single standard, medical certificates for bridegroom, birth control, and so on. The motive here, I believe, is mere rage and jealousy. The woman who has not pursued sets up the doctrine that pursuit is offensive to her sex and wants to make it a felony. No genuinely attractive woman has any such desire. She likes masculine admiration, however violently expressed, and is quite able to take care of herself. More, she is well aware that very few men are bold enough to offer it without plain invitation, and this awareness makes her extremely cynical of all women who complain of being harassed, beset, stormed, and seduced. All the more intelligent women that I know, indeed, are unanimously of the opinion that no girl in her right senses has ever been actually seduced since the world began. Whenever they hear of a case, they sympathize with the man. Yet more, the normal women of lively charms roving about among men always tries to draw the admiration of those who are previously admired elsewhere. She prefers the professional to the amateur, 
and estimates her skill by the attractiveness of the huntresses who have hitherto stalked it. The iron-faced suffragist propagandist, if she gets a man at all, must get one wholly without sentimental experience. If he has any, her crude maneuvers make him laugh, and he is repelled by her lack of pulchritude and amiability. All such suffragists, save a few miraculous beauties, marry ninth-rate men when they marry at all. They have to put up with the sort of cast-offs who are almost ready to fall in love with lady physicists, embryologists, and embalmers. Fortunately for the human race, the campaigns of these indignant viragos will come to naught. Men will keep on pursuing women until hell freezes over, and women will keep luring them on. If the latter enterprise were abandoned, in fact, the whole game of love would play out, for not many men take any notice of women spontaneously. Nine men out of ten would be quite happy, I believe, if there were no women in the world, once they had grown accustomed to the quiet. Practically all men are their happiest when they are engaged upon activities, for example, drinking, gambling, hunting, business, adventure, to which women are not ordinarily admitted. It is women who seduce them from such celibate doings. The hare postures and gyrates in front of the hound. The way to put an end to the gaudy crimes that the suffragist alarmists talk about is to shave the heads of all the pretty girls in the world, and pluck out their eyebrows, and pull out their teeth, and put them in khaki, and forbid them to wriggle on dance floors, or to wear scents, or to use lipsticks, or to roll their eyes. Reform, as usual, mistakes the fish for the fly. 33. A Glance into the Future The present public prosperity of the ex-suffragists is chiefly due to the fact that the old-time male politicians, being naturally very stupid, mistake them for spokesmen for the whole body of women, and so show them politeness. But sooner or late, and probably disconcertingly soon, the great mass of sensible and agnostic women will turn upon them and depose them, and thereafter the women vote will be no longer to disposable of the bogus great thinkers and messiahs. If the suffragists continue to fill the newspapers with nonsense, once that change has been effected, it will be only as a minority sect of tolerated idiots, like the Svenbordians, Christian scientists, Seventh-day Adventists, and other such fanatics of today. This was the history of the extension of suffrage in all of the American states that made it before the national enfranchisement of women, and it will be repeated in the nation at large and in Great Britain and on the continent. Women are not taken in by quackery as readily as men are. The hardness of their shell of logic makes it difficult to penetrate to their emotions. For one woman who testifies publicly that she has been cured of cancer by some swindling patent medicine, there are at least twenty masculine witnesses. Even such frauds as the favorite American elixir, Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound, which are ostensibly remedies for specific feminine ills, anatomically impossible in the male, are chiefly swallowed, so an intelligent druggist tells me, by men. My own belief, based on elaborate inquiries and long meditation, is that the grant of the ballot to women marks the concealed but nonetheless real beginning of an improvement in our politics, and, in the end, in our whole theory of government. As things stand, an intelligent grappling with some of the capital problems of the Commonwealth is almost impossible. A politician normally prospers under democracy, not in proportion as his principles are sound and his honor incorruptible but in proportion as he excels in the manufacture of sonorous phrases and the invention of imaginary perils and imaginary defenses against them. 
Our politics thus degenerates into a mere pursuit of hobgoblins. The male voter, a coward as well as an ass, is forever taking fright in a new one and electing some mountbank to lay it. For a hundred years past, the people of the United States, the most terrible existing democratic state, have scarcely had a political campaign that was not based upon some preposterous fear, first of slavery, and then of the manumitted slave, first of capitalism, and then of communism, first of the old, and then of the novel. It is a peculiarity of women that they are not easily set off by such alarms, that they do not fall readily into such facile tumults and phobias. What starts a male meeting to snuffling and trembling most violently is precisely the thing that would cause a female meeting to sniff. What we need to ward off mobocracy and safeguard a civilized form of government is more of this sniffing. What we need, and in the end it must come, is a sniff so powerful that it will call a halt upon the navigation of the ship from the forecastle, and put a competent staff on the bridge, and lay a course that is describable in intelligible terms. The officers nominated by the male electorate in modern democracies before the extension of the suffrage were usually chosen not for their competence, but for their mere talent for idiocy. They reflected accurately the male weakness for whatever is rhetorical and sentimental and feeble and untrue. Consider, for example, what happened in a salient case. Every four years the male voters of the United States choose from among themselves one who was put forward as the man most fit of all resident men to be the first citizen of the Commonwealth. He was chosen after interminable discussion. His qualifications were thoroughly canvassed. Very large powers and dignities were put into his hands. Well, what did we commonly find when we examined this gentleman? We found not a profound thinker, not a leader of sound opinion, not a man of notable sense, but merely a wholesaler of notions so infantile that they must needs disgust a sentient suckling, in brief, a spouting geyser of fallacies and sentimentalities, a cataract of unsupported assumptions and hollow moralizings, a tedious phrase merchant and a platitudinarian, a fellow whose noblest flights of thought were flattered when they were called comprehensible, specifically, a Wilson, a Taft, a Roosevelt, or a Harding. This was the male champion. I do not venture upon the cruelty of comparing his bombastic flummeries to the clear reasoning of a woman of like fame and position. All I ask of you is that you weigh them, for sense, for shrewdness, for intelligent grasp of obscure relation, for intellectual honesty and courage, with the ideas of the average midwife. 34. The Suffragette I have spoken with some disdain of the suffragette. What is the matter with her, fundamentally, is simple. She is a woman who has stupidly carried her envy of certain of the superficial privileges of men to such a point that it takes on the character of an obsession and makes her blind to their valueless and often chiefly imaginary character. In particular, she centers this frenzy of hers upon one definitive privilege, to wit, the alleged privilege of promiscuity and amour, the modern droit de seigneur, Read the books of the chief lady Savonarellis, and you will find running through them a hysterical denunciation of what is called the double standard of morality. There is, indeed, a whole literature devoted exclusively to it. The existence of this double standard seems to drive the poor girls half frantic. 
they bellow raucously for its abrogation and demand that the frivolous male be visited with even more idiotic penalties than those which now visit the aberrant female. Some even advocate gravely his mutilation by surgery, that he may be forced into rectitude by a physical disability for sin. All this, of course, is hocus-pocus, and the judicious are not deceived by it for an instant. What these virtuous beldams actually desire in their hearts is not that the male be reduced to chemical purity, but that the franchise of dalliance be extended to themselves. The most elementary acquaintance with Freudian psychology exposes their secret animus. Unable to ensnare males under the present system, or at all events, unable to ensnare males sufficiently appetizing to arouse the envy of other women, they leap to the theory that it would be easier if the rules were less exacting. This theory exposes their deficiency in the chief character of their sex, accurate observation. The fact is that, even if they possess the freedom that men are supposed to possess, they would still find it difficult to achieve their ambition, for the average man, whatever his stupidity, is at least keen enough in judgment to prefer a single wink from a genuinely attractive woman to the last delirious favors of the typical suffragette. Thus the theory of the whoopers and snorters of the cause, in its esoteric as well as in its public aspect, is unsound. They are simply women who, in their tastes and processes of mind, are two-thirds men, and the fact explains their failure to achieve presentable husbands, or even consolatory betrayal, quite as effectively it explains the ready credence they give political and philosophical absurdities. End of Section 7, Woman Suffrage, Part 1.